Welcome to the Mile High Fly Podcast. I am Carl Jensen, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a special guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, my name is Michael Kwan. I am a financial freedom blogger. I've got a site called Financially Alert, and I share all about my journey and other people's journey to financial independence and sometimes retiring early. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about fire the financial independence, retire early. But Michael, I understand you had some run-ins with the other kind of fire as a child. Can you tell us about that? It is a little bit ironic that that I talk about fire a lot now because when I was a kid, I was also known for fire, but not in the good way. When I was about five years old, we had this palm tree in our backyard and it was the trunk was like really furry for some reason. It was a special type of palm tree. It was basically like a tinder box. And as a kid, I thought it'd be kind of cool to put a firecracker rod in this thing because, you know, you could stick it in and it would stay right there. So decided to light it up, and that wasn't quite the best idea. Whole palm tree basically went boom. <laughs> and, oh, wow. Yeah, my mom found that quickly, thankfully, put it out. And that was my first uh, accidental attempt at <laughs> burning down my house. Wow, that's uh, that's crazy. Did they have to send you for a special session to the fire department so the firemen could talk to you about fire safety? Or I, I had a friend who did something similar, and his parents like made him go to the fire station and get a talking to by by the firemen. Did your mom make you do anything like that? Or so because I was five, my mom's like, you know what, never do that again. By the time I was seven or eight, I did it again in a different manner. This time it was during the summertime. And I decided to mix up some chemicals in the kitchen. And I decided to put some oil, a little vanilla extract, which is pure alcohol. And it started popping. Lo and behold, it was on the stove and <laughs> flames started popping out of the pan, going on the floor. And uh, that was the second time I almost burned down the house. <laughs> the second time, was there a third time as well? Unfortunately, there's a third time, Carl. The third time I actually was with my cousin and granted this one i think was more my cousin's fault <laughs> so we it was on near fourth of july and we were supposed to go to the beach and we took apart this firework that we had and we were doing a little experiment in the backyard and in california where i'm at it's super hot very arid and so like the whole lawn that we had in the backyard was completely dry probably wasn't the best place to do our experiments but inadvertently we knew we weren't supposed to do this and we heard my mom coming to the back. So I said to my cousin, hey, put this out. I'm going to go run interference to my mom. And so she, uh, I, you know, ran interference, got her. We went to the front yard, and we were supposed to actually lead to the beach. And uh, my cousin came out maybe like 15 seconds later or so, and I said, did you stomp it out? And he's like, I think so. I look up in the back, and there's a plume of smoke coming out of the back. And I uh, subsequently had to run and jump the fence and uh, get the hose. Now, Carl, to your question, the third time my mom did send me to the fire department. They did test me for pyromania. And fortunately, it wasn't pyromania, just a lot of curiosity and angst. But yes, I did learn my lesson, and I did not have a fourth attempt. Michael, there are some fires going on in California right now. Um, is there anything you have to say about that? There is nothing to say about that. Good. Yes. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, Michael, I understand you had some interesting role models as a kid. You had some rich uncles. Can you tell us about them and 
Can you tell us about them? Absolutely. You know, I was really fortunate growing up, and I had a couple of uncles who, one was a very successful entrepreneur, and he owned a lot of businesses, and I saw all the success that he had, and so I was like, wow, that's interesting. I want to be an entrepreneur one day. And then I had another uncle who was a dentist, and I noticed that he retired early, about the age of 39. But as a kid, you didn't really pay attention to these things. But what I did notice was that he was constantly home with his kids, fully present, taking them to school each and every day. And I was like, how come my parents have to go to work? How come they're not always home? And how come everyone, all my other friends have normal nine to five jobs? And my uncle would take me to some of his apartments and we'd be helping him you know, change out mini blinds and helping him clean the toilets. You know, we were the free labor. We didn't know, we were just going to hang out. And over time, I started to realize, hey, this is a different way of doing things. And so I really think this is an unfair advantage that I had because I had the, just the idea of possibility that this could even be, a, you know, that you could have an alternate way than, you know, traditional nine to five. Mm -hmm. And did they teach you anything specific? Were you asking questions? I'm not sure what age you had that realization. Yeah. So I was pretty young when I first started kind of noticing this. And so I didn't start asking questions until I was about my later teens. And so my uncle told me about the real estate that he had you know, acquired, but he didn't really give me specifics at all. It was more just kind of casual. He was kind of done, not really in it anymore. So he was just, oh yeah, you know, real estate's great, great investment. And it like kind of left it at that. So it was left up to me later on in life to kind of go figure out the details. Okay. So your uncle retired from a dental practice at 39? He did. Wow. That's pretty, and he, he gave it up completely. He just retired. He gave it up completely. And he acquired a lot of real estate in the, in the process, owned his own practice, also the building, and then acquired apartment buildings and single family homes. Okay. It's just, that story is pretty amazing because now everyone's heard about fire, it seems like, but someone back then, there was none. No one like Mr. Money Mustache or J.D. Roth to tell us about these concepts, to have that kind of foresight and to be able to spend time with the kids like you witnessed. Oh, what an incredible role model. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was very interesting. So my, I told you I had two uncles. One uncle was you know, this other entrepreneur, and he owned many different businesses, and he took a little bit of a different path. I don't think he was home that much with the kids because he was constantly going. And I saw the two different ways that people could do it. And that was another advantage that I got to solve. So I'm like, okay, you can have similar results, but you can also have very different lives. Okay. I'm, I'm just curious, uh, did you meet any of their friends often, if, if people are entrepreneurs, they're friends with other entrepreneurs and they, uh, well, they just hang out, they're buddies, right? So yeah, did you see any of their friends who are maybe also into real estate to see even more like examples of this working? Yeah, I never really saw too many of their friends necessarily, but what I did notice was that my one uncle that I was closer to, the one that was the dentist, he was constantly learning something new. He always had something that he was trying to learn about, whether it was stocks, whether it was personal development, he was always growing. And so I definitely took notice of that. That's awesome. It kind of reminds me of that Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, but the difference is I think Kiyosaki admitted he made that all that thing up. It was a fabrication, <laughs> but this is true. You actually had two rich uncles, or two role models. Yeah, and I feel very fortunate that I had that. And, and ultimately, as we talk about the book, you'll see that that was really kind of part of my motivation for writing the book because I realized that a lot of people never have this experience. I just got lucky. Just, I, 
you don't get to choose where you're, you know, which family you're born into. And so I wanted to take my own fair advantage and, you know, give it to other people. Someone that's coming out, they don't know anything about fire. They can pick up the book and be like, what is this? How do you start at the, at the beginning? Yeah, sure. Can you share your net worth on your blog? And that's not super common. Can you tell us about that and why you share? Yeah, that's a great question. So as I was mentioning with my uncles, I didn't know any details. All I knew was that they were not having to go to work. Um, what it was though, I think with the net worth is I like details and I like dissecting things. And so when I started finally going on my journey to trying to understand how to unravel and create passive income, I would try to find people that would teach some of these principles. And so Robert Kiyosaki is a great person to get you into the idea, get in the right mindset but he doesn't necessarily share details. And so I started trying to find people that actually share details because I'm a numbers guy. I want to know, you know, what, what are we talking about? And so when it came down to sharing the net worth, it's something that I mulled over for actually quite some time. It took me probably six months before I actually, you know, published the first one. But I, at the end, I decided, you know what? I think it's more important for people to be able to learn through example and understand. And if it makes sense and they can see how the cash flow is coming in and out and how things are compounding, then they can say, oh, okay, I can do that. And when, t tell us when you started the blog and then it sounds like, you know, six months passed, at least when you were thinking about sharing the net worth and where you were in your FI journey when you did share your net worth. Absolutely. Yeah, so as far as sharing the net worth, I started the blog in about 2015, I think it was, maybe 2000, yeah, it was 2015. And at the time I had basically sold off my company. I'd gone to, I'd worked for the company that acquired us for about a year and a half. They were completely morally corrupt. And so I was like, goodbye. <laughs> Negotiated a severance package because we had an employment agreement for, I think, three years. But exited from there. And my daughter was one at the time. And so I was like, you know what? Do I want to do something new and just go back to work? Or do I want to be present with the family? So I decided the latter to really be present with the family. And again, back to my uncle that I saw really engaging with his family. And I was like, you know what? This is, this is the model that I want to follow. The riches on the other side are great, but they're just things. And so what happened was I think once I started being present with my family, it was fantastic. And at the same time, I had just literally done a 180 from owning an IT integration services company with 12 people. And I was like, you know, the president of this. So it kind of screws with your head and your identity a little bit, right? And so I decided to start up the blog as a side project late at night when I wasn't with the, the kids. Gotcha. And um, I'm not 100% sure where we are. We have a nice outline over there, but you mentioned you sold your company, right? So can you tell us a little about your company and what, like, how, how did you end up starting that and just the background? Sure. So going through college, I always knew that I want to start a company. But the problem was I didn't know how to do anything. And so <laughs> in college, I was, I was one of those kids that was like undeclared for like as long as you can be undeclared until like the bursar off or the registrar comes and says, you need to declare or we're kicking you out. So I'm like, all right, which degree requires the fewest number of credits? <laughs> Lo and behold, it was actually economics. So <laughs> I ended up with an <laughs> economics degree. <laughs> but the funny thing was that when I was exiting college, 
going out with an economics degree didn't really mean anything. And, you know, I could have gotten an entry level job at some, you know, boring nine to five. And I was like, you know, that's not me. It was also during the late nineties when we had the dot-com boom. And so I saw a lot of these technology companies growing and there's tons of money flowing in that area. And I was like, you know what? I was a computer gamer in college. They're paying these IT support people like tons of money, these administrators. I'm like, I do this for fun. I take apart my computers. I try to make them faster. I build faster networks. I bet you I could probably do this. And so actually right after I got my degree, I did some Microsoft certifications and started learning networking in a corporate environment. And that's how I got my first job in IT. Once I had my first job in IT, it was, it was actually really great. I actually got to learn about a company, learn about the different elements of different departments. Because I was so naive back then, I had no clue whatsoever. And it's interesting now that I think back on it, because if the, I think if the growth continued in that time, it's easy to get trapped, I think, sometimes into a, into a career path where they're throwing you know, decent money at you and getting, you know, potentially getting stuck in there. But what happened was about a year and a half in, 9-11 happened and occurred, and we had a New York office and an L.A. office and a San Diego office, which was where I was at. And, you know, everything imploded with the economy, and our company was no different. So I took that opportunity to kind of do some soul searching, but it w had to do it pretty quickly because about the sixth round of layoffs, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to stick around anymore for the seventh round. And I grabbed a couple of buddies and said, hey, let's go do this on our own because we were the only segment of our company that was still profitable. People still need support with their systems. And so that was the beginning of this IT company and just slowly built that over time for the next 10 years. And that's how the, the tech company came about. Wow, that's awesome. So you did it for 10 years and then you sold to more morally corrupt people who I'm sure <laughs> you didn't know were morally corrupt at the time. Had no clue. Okay. And you also own real estate. Can you tell us about your real estate investments? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting as well, even though I owned a company and we got, we paid ourselves a healthy salary, it wasn't like crazy money. Um, one of the things I share on the blog is kind of like the progression of salary along the way. And so, you know, we weren't earning six figures until maybe like a few years in. And even then, it was like, you know, low six figures. But what I did while I was even growing this business was I was starting to learn. I was starting to save and invest. And again, I saw that real estate, I was telling you, with my uncles. And I started to learn about that. When I first started getting really interested in real estate investing, it was about 2005, 2006. And so this is like at a time when, you know, real estate prices were appreciating really quickly and we had this sudden gold rush, right, of real estate investors, investors, right, that said, hey, you got to you got to buy something. Look, my property is now worth like, you know, an extra $20,000 and it's only been like two months. And I was like, wow, that's cool. But on the other side, I'm actually reading books from legitimate real estate investors that are talking about cash flow. And I'm like, these these don't jive. And so. I basically studied for a few years, and by the time we came around to 2010, I was patient, thankfully. That's when I started actually acquiring some properties. And this is right around the same time that I was exiting my company, so taking some of that equity out of the business, putting that into the real estate. Okay. How many properties do you own now, and are they all, are they all residential properties, or do you own any commercial? 
Yeah, they're primarily residential. I do participate in some syndications, um, but I do have some properties in Las Vegas. And so single family homes, three bedroom, four bedroom. And then most recently, a short term rental that's a one bedroom. And so that one's actually pretty exciting because I'm sure both of you know, like the short term rental market is you can incre- you can have some pretty good income with those yeah. relative to a traditional rental. Yeah, you sure can. Is that one in Las Vegas as well? Or? It is. And how, how do you turn it over? How do you manage it? Yeah, so I've got a friend who is, that's his whole business, is basically managing short-term rentals. And he just started doing that for his friends and family. And so I'm one of his close friends, and he's like, hey, look at these numbers. And I was like, I was like, no, I'm good. You know, these other houses, I've had these for like, you know, over a decade. They're just pumping out, you know, cash. It's good. And he's like, no, you got to look at these numbers. And I looked at the numbers. And I'm like, are you serious? This can't be real. And so what it was is that he's like, this one bedroom can basically rent for three to four grand a month. While over here, my four bedroom is getting maybe like 2000 if I'm lucky. Wow. Is that net your fees for turning it over? I'm sure your friend gets some of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the numbers that I just talked about, just to clarify, those are gross numbers. Okay. Um, but for like the single family homes, you know, I've paid off all the mortgages on those. So... Most of that's free and clear, but the one that I just most recently purchased, out of the three or four thousand dollars that comes in, you know, fifty percent of that's just straight net income. But yeah, the other fifty percent that's not included is yeah going to my friend, but he charges me a very reasonable rate to okay. manage the property. I don't have to do anything. He gets all the reviews. He keeps a constant like you know a very great pulse on the you know the clients that are coming in and staying there. And literally it's only been four or five months and he's gotten like 27, like pretty much five-star reviews. It's like 4.96 or something like that. 27 reviews in like four months. I'm like, are you kidding me? How did you do that? And it's just constant communication. He's got like five VAs that are going out and they've got 27, 24, seven support for the people that are coming in and staying. Nice. And it, it sounds like you're batting a thousand. You make no mistakes. Do you have any stories of real estate maybe that didn't work out? Yeah, it sounds like I'm betting a thousand, but <laughs> let me tell you why it's not a thousand. <laughs> so funny story is the first purchase that I ever made with real estate, I was telling you, I was studying for a good five years from 2005, 2006, all the way up to 2010. I was doing all the research. I was making sure my numbers looked great. I was looking at the cash flow. I was looking at the appreciation potential. I was looking at my worst possible case scenarios and I was like, I'm ready. 2010, the prices in Las Vegas had dropped probably 60 to 70% of the highs. And I was like, this is the perfect time to get in. I found this great three-bedroom, two-bath house. And I was like, these numbers are phenomenal. I'm going to go in, snap it up. And other real estate investors actually saw that as well. So I actually had to you know, go into some bidding wars. But eventually, I caught one. And I was just like super stoked. I was like, I got my first one. I'm good. I actually told my uncle, hey, check this out. I got my first rental property. He's like, good job, great. And uh, unfortunately, I found out quickly thereafter when I went to go rent it out that there was an HOA exclusion on rentals in that specific community, meaning that the HOA would not allow you to rent it to anyone other than your direct parents or children, not even aunts and uncles, not even cousins. It had to be like, you know, literally like one degree of separation from your family. And I was just like, what did I just do? And I'd taken so much time. And so I was just like, 
should I give up? Should I be the guy that says real estate just doesn't work? And I was like, no, but these numbers were, these numbers were legit. And so I held onto this property and four or five months later, I saw a property across the street in a different HOA and I bought that property and I still have that property till this day. Okay. What did you do with the original one that you couldn't rent? Did you turn around and sell that one or? Yeah. So we ended up using it as a so-called vacation home for like <laughs> two years. <laughs> Got a little bit of a tax write-off, not much. Um, and you know, yeah, we just kept it and thankfully it was in 2010. So the market came back. Eventually I was able to get my equity back out and it was a wash. So I did, you know, luck out in that regard. How did you miss that in the HOA um, rules and stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the funny thing was like, I was all about the due diligence. And then right at the end, when you're kind of going through all the closing, some of the excitement and the emotion, I got caught up in it. And they sent over like the HOA disclosure stuff. I actually went through it, but I skipped through some of it and I, it didn't even register. So okay. it was just a function of missing it and glossing over it at somehow and yeah i missed it i think it's just i think it's because i was so excited and i was so like you know emotionally tied to this outcome that i was like waiting for for so long right that that, that's that's what happened yeah and i was gonna say you seem detail oriented and like you said you were studying for so long i I would have assumed but yeah uh, that totally makes sense You'll never forget that lesson. I won't. <laughs> I will never forget that lesson. And I try to teach people that lesson as well. Always read your documents. Always make sure. Well, how many, I wonder, just out of curiosity, how many HOAs have provisions like that? Have you come across that before? Because I wouldn't even, I, I would think maybe there would be something in there to limit short-term rentals because a lot of people don't like that. They don't want mm-hmm. their local neighborhood turned into a uh, hotel complex, but Long-term rentals, I've never heard of anything like that before. So I, <laughs> what you don't know, you don't know, I guess, right? To be honest, that was part of it as well. That's why I miss it because it's such a foreign idea. It's like I'm buying this as a rental. And the other thing was actually I saw some properties in that community listed. But here's the thing. Those people also didn't know. But what I found out later is that the HOA is pretty fast to get on those listings and like you know have them take them down or they start finding you daily. And so I didn't realize that because I'm like, oh, well, they're renting it, so I can rent it as well. That was part of my due diligence, except I didn't go deep enough to see like, oh, they're only staying up and then maybe they're getting taken down. You don't know unless I'm actually saying, hey, I'm going to rent this out. And they're like, oh, no, we can't rent it now. Mm-hmm. There would no, be no way that I could even figure that out. And we, uh, we lived at a condo complex or townhome, or I don't know what it was, but they had a think cap so it was like 25 percent of the the condos could be rented out so once they hit that cap like you couldn't do anymore i think you could probably like try to get an exclusion but you know people didn't want it to have like even long-term renters they wanted it to be homeowners so i think that's why the rule was there okay crazy do you have plans to acquire any more real estate, Michael? Or are you? Are you I do. I actually I put a bid on a property like this week while we were at VinCon, and uh, it didn't go through because someone came in higher. But yeah, I, I'm I'm loving this short-term rentals because it's a really great. In Las Vegas, is a great market, I think, because there's a very consistent season. There's always conferences that are coming in and out. So some of the other vacation rental areas. You know, are great, but sometimes there's some lulls. Obviously, depending on you know people are coming in and out of like a vacation area. 
Las Vegas just seems to be a pretty steady stream. Plus, I have some other real estate there. And fringe benefit, you can stay in there. When there is a downturn, you can just hang out yeah. and, yeah. Yeah, this is kind of cool. I have uh, family there. So is there a friend of a friend uh, deal for your <laughs> guy, Michael? <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, let's talk about your book. Uh, we have it right here. It's the, called the Fire, um, the Fire Planner. I was didn't know whether to uh, read out the Financial Independence Retire Early Planner, but there you have it. Uh, why did you write a book? How did this come about? Yeah, the Fire Planner was really something that's been percolating in my head for the last few years. Ever since, you know, retiring early from a traditional nine to five, it's something that where. Again, I felt this obligation almost to share some of my knowledge with other people because, again, I knew that most people don't get these experiences. And so I was like, let me put this on paper. And so that's where the blog started. And then I'm like, well, maybe I should put this in a book. The, the fortunate and unfortunate thing of having freedom at that point is that sometimes you take on a lot of different projects and you get shiny object syndrome. And so one of them was writing this book. And so I had basically a half-written book that was sitting in the shelf for a good three years. And so I didn't really do anything with it. I was going to self-publish it originally. But fortunately, um, a publisher reached out during, I guess it was maybe like a year and a half, two years ago now, and said, hey, we're actually looking to do a book on fire. We noticed you talk about this in the blog. Would you be interested in authoring it? And I was like, yeah, let's have a conversation. And lo and behold, it was a company out of the UK, they were a very, what I liked about them was that their expertise was really doing illustrated types of books where they're more of planners and not just a traditional straight type of book. And so I was like, you know, that's something different. I wanted to do something different because there's some great books on fire currently. And so by the time they finally came to me, I'm like, yeah, how can we make this different? And I said, hey, if we make this really graphical, I think it can really, you know, target people that don't even know anything about fire, make it more approachable. And so I ended up signing a deal with them, and then they ended up taking it and uh, selling the rights for U.S. distribution to Simon Schuster Imprint. And uh, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's exactly what I needed. I needed. I needed to sign in the dotted line so that I had an actual deadline. And so I was telling you, it took me about five years to, to, for this to percolate. But when they finally said, let's do this, it took two and a half months to get them the content. Okay. That's fast. Yeah, that is really fast. Have you ever written anything like that size or scope or anything like that? Never. It was, yeah, I, I'd never done that before. And so I didn't know what to expect. So I just said, sure. <laughs> you figure it out as you yeah, go along. Pretty much. Any specific challenges? Like it, obviously you blogged for a while and you had a lot of your ideas. And I, I suspect with a proposal, you had a table of contents or you knew what was going to be in there. Right. So yeah. What was it like actually sitting your ass in the seat and, and writing the book? Yeah, what I really liked about the traditional publisher was that from the get-go, they said, just get us the content and don't worry about the editing. Because I'm the kind of person where, like, even with blogging, I know you shouldn't do it, but sometimes, like, um, writing and editing at the same time, that's, like, the worst possible thing you can do. But, I mean, I guess that's just the way my brain functions at times. And so they're like, just get the content out. We'll handle the copy editing. We'll handle all this. And so... I took that to heart and I just kind of went for it in that regard because again, there was this time frame that was pretty aggressive and they said, okay, give us to it in chunks. Basically it was a third, a third and a third. And yeah, I had to, 
had to get in my Zen place occasionally. But most of the book actually was written after the wife and the kids went to sleep. So usually about from midnight to about 4 a.m. was when I wrote the book. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, what kind of hours usually keep? I know we're going on a tangent, but that's how it is sometimes. Yeah, so that's crazy. That's usually when I get my best sleep. So how do you end up working that sort of hours? <laughs> yeah, I've always been a little bit of a night owl, just naturally. And so sometimes I usually get a second wave right around midnight when the wife and the kids go to sleep. And so I just kind of wake up and that's kind of like when I get in the zone. I subsequently have switched off of that because there's some great value to a morning routine. But for me, when I, when I need to do something and I really need to laser focus, sometimes I go to that spot where it's like, I'm not interrupted. This is kind of just pure uninterrupted space. Cool. Yeah, I want to talk about some specific things in the book. I, I guess my first one, I, I like the book a lot. Uh, I'll say that. And I think it's a, it's a fun read. I don't know how much you could, YouTube people could see it, but it's a workbook. So you get to fill in. Uh, there's pages like this, your investor policy statement worksheet, where you get to work through it and write in the book. Uh, lots of great quotes. And it's just it's fun read, lots of good graphics and stuff like that. But I didn't see, and maybe I missed this, but you, you talk about passive income. I didn't, did you talk about growth investor, growth investing in here? Like, uh, so my personal strategy is to, I'm not a dividend guy, so I don't really have any passive income. When my wife stops working, we'll just have to sell stocks. And I know some, sometimes that's unpopular or difficult with some people, but what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I love actually growth investing. And, and I, I realize it's not really highlighted in there. There's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. And so I try to give a pretty broad overview so people can get interested. And then if they want to go deeper, they can go deeper. Interesting thing is about 30% of the original text that I sent to them, we had to cut just because there was a limitation in the amount of pages that was in the contract. Okay. Ah, I detect a, I smell a sequel or maybe some bonus material. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, for some of that material, do you feel like it's, it was, well, I guess it wouldn't be completely critical and essential, but you have to cut something. So yeah. How valuable do you feel that content, that 30% that you had to edit out? Yeah, I think there is some definitely some pieces that I'd like to to kind of get out there. I don't know if I want to put it into the blog or if there's enough for another, you know, second piece of the book. But I do potentially want to go deeper into some of the entrepreneurship area and how going through the mindset of owning a business and ultimately exiting and then not just exiting to buy a boat or buy a fancy car, but to actually buy assets in the process. I think that's maybe an area that hasn't really been tapped and where I think I could provide some additional value. Okay. Yeah, I, I like a lot of the content in here. And I, I wrote this one down on page 30. You talk about resourcefulness and you say, it's nice to have a fat emergency fund, but it's even, it's even better to find a way to thrive inside a crisis by creating value. I think that's super cool. It reminded me of a, uh, I think Mr. Money Mustache wrote a post and I don't remember what it was about, but he mentioned he didn't have much insurance and someone gave him a bunch of shit for it, and his response was, well, I, I think my wife at the time and I are smart enough that we'd be able to figure out something if if anything really went bad or one of us passed away. And I, I like that because the, there's a lot of content out there just trying to scare the shit out of you. And I like this because it's positive, and there's so many ways to make money. I was on a walk with someone today, and, and they... I never heard of this before. I think it's called printables. They sell these PDF things 
on Etsy that you buy. They had to create them one time. They didn't even create them. They got a VA to create these things. And they sell these things. It's like five bucks a download. And the person makes like thousands of dollars per month from this silly thing. What the hell? So I really like that comment about resourcefulness. And I don't think many people think that way, but they should. Yeah. And as I was actually writing this book, we were actually right in the thick of COVID. And so what I was seeing was that, you know, there was a lot of people that were, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. And I get that. That was no different than when, you know, we had 9-11, the economy is imploding and I'm facing a layoff and you have a choice, right? You can, you can buy into that fear or you can, if you're already scared, then maybe you can get scared doing something else and getting resourceful and creating value in this new situation. And so with COVID, I saw people being very resourceful. Some people that were 3D printing back then, you know, their whole business went away, but then they're like, you know what? let's use our 3D printers to print like the face masks or there was people that were coming up with ways to support other people. And I was just, this is great. It's a great time for entrepreneurs to really create value in a new environment. So that's why I think being able to get the confidence to know that whatever happens, you can figure it out. I think that skill almost trumps the emergency fund in some senses. I mean, it's good to have that emergency fund. But if you know that you don't necessarily need that because you can be resourceful enough to figure it out, then you'll have that mindset that's there to be confident to just move forward and not have that scarcity anymore. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. I, I love that. Another thing I liked is on page 41, you talked about finding good, positive people to spend your time with. And yeah, can you elaborate on, on that a little bit and what that does for your life? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. People that are successful or that appear successful, you know, if you talk to someone nine out of 10 times, they're going to tell you they didn't do it on their own. And it's usually because they've found mentors. They've learned from other people before. They have a network that looks out for them. They have a strong support system. They have a family. And, you know, sometimes we don't get to choose who these people are, but sometimes we actually get to. Sometimes you could put yourself in an environment Myself, I'm naturally introverted, but I force myself to put myself into situations where I'm uncomfortable, where I have to interact with people. And those have, been, those have paid so many dividends so many times over. And so I just encourage people to get outside of their comfort zone and really network with other people because everyone's running you know, the same race, right? We all have so many things in common. And if we just take time to slow down and just connect on a, on a human level, Everyone wants to look out for everyone else. And if you have that support network, it's hard to fail. Mm-hmm. You can't fail. Yeah. Do you have any tips for people that are also introverted and maybe how you, you know, won that battle with yourself to get in those uncomfortable situations? Absolutely. One of the best things that I found was to identify a mastermind with people with like values. So, you know, you might connect on a common hobby initially. Or for me, I liked actually personal development. So you might go to a conference and you connect with people on maybe multiple levels and you say, hey, let's keep in contact. Maybe we can have a standing call once a month. Just check in, see how you're doing in this specific area. Or for finance, you, we're, at a, we're at FinCon, which is a conference for financial influencers. Everyone has very similar values to want to help people learn more about their money and be able to grow and connecting with people like you and sharing these ideas. I mean, there's nothing quite like it to have that commonality and then share that message and augment that message together. And so I think for 
the, the more introverted people. It takes, I think it just takes courage to be, when it comes down to it. I was terrified. I actually, I started a podcast uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and it's the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. The last thing I ever wanted to do was actually get on a microphone. So you're lucky, actually. I've been doing this for a little bit now, because if I had done this just, you know, without any practice, it would have probably been awful. But, but I tell you this because when you get out of your comfort zone, you do something more and more, you start to build the confidence. You start to realize, you know what? It's okay to screw up. It's okay to fail forward. And people see that. They see that you're like real and they connect on that level. We're all, we're all doing the same thing. And so I think that's really the, the secret is getting outside of our head. How can I help this other person first? And if I can help this other person, they're going to naturally want to help me. That's such great advice. And while you were talking, I thought, uh, Michael, you're a perfect example. You found out I was coming to San Diego. This was some years ago now, probably five years ago. And, and Michael's like, hey, do you want to meet up? I'm like, sure. And we met, I think it was at a brewery, like on a rooftop bar. And, and you bought me, you brought us a big plate of cookies. And I'll never forget that. And then later <laughs> on, you sent us those. But you were genuinely just a nice person and no agenda. We just sat there and talked. And now here we are all these years later still connecting and helping each each other out and uh, i'll never forget you because of that thoughtful gesture and all so. it takes is cookies to to win you over it, it doesn't take much man <laughs> i like cheesecake so whenever I, <laughs> I like cookies unfortunately too. i don't beat cheesecake but right. but maybe maybe that could be the next shiny object syndrome <laughs> cheesecake is pretty freaking good do you like the fancy ones dog like a turtle cheesecake or are you just a purist no no i'll eat whatever and you know good cheesecakes bad cheesecakes it's like pizza yeah. Even bad pizzas, like, still pretty good. I like pizza, so. God, God that cheese, we're going off on a tangent, but the, the Cheesecake Factory, that restaurant, you ever go there? Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Oh, my God, some of their cheesecake there, it's like 800 calories for this little tiny slice, but oh, it's so good. Okay, this this episode has been not been brought to you by the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> <laughs> it has been brought to you by Michael's Cookies, actually. <laughs> that's a good name, Michael's Cookies, if that's not taken. I smell a future, I smell a future business venture for you. I would actually like to do a restaurant at some point. Before actually blogging financially, it was actually, I, I did a food blog for quite some time. Okay. Yeah. Nice. While I was running the business, actually. Because, here's, here's the funny thing. Because I was actually eating out so often, I was like, I got to remember all the places that I'm eating at and what I actually like to eat because I love food, but I don't necessarily remember everything. So I told my cousin who worked for me at the time, I said, hey, let's start a food blog. And so we started a food blog. He was working for me and he was the manager of, of the company. And probably not the best thing to do because we were going out for these two hour lunches and the rest of the employees are like, where the hell are you? Bad example, don't do that if you're an entrepreneur. But yeah, that's how I started blogging initially. Okay. Yeah, another topic I'd like to talk about is cars. You mentioned this on page 52. And maybe this one is fresh in my mind because someone left me a comment on the blog. She's like, yeah, I'm really into fire. I love fire, but but my sister's not. She said, well, I guess I could do that, but then I'd have to drive a shitbox around. You really <laughs> expect me to, to drive a shitbox? I want a luxury vehicle. Uh, luxury is a bad word in, in my life. Uh, I think about this a lot because what is a luxury car? Why are leather seeds better like i prefer fabric i don't like sitting on leather your legs stick to them and all that especially if you wear shorts all the time like me uh what, why do you think people value these things why and the, the the irony too is a lot of the luxury cars not only do they cost more 
but they're not as reliable. A cheap, shitty, not shitty, a good Honda Civic or Toyota Camry or whatever is going to be far less cost over the years to maintain than a fancy German brand. It's going to do its core job better. But people, for me, luxury is reliability and a high probability that it's going to get me to point A and B. And it's got to have air conditioning, so I'll, I'll take that. But why, why do you think people obsess over stuff like cars? Yeah, I think it really boils down to what the media is telling us. And it boils down to what we intrinsically think we want, meaning that having the car, having a handbag that's, you know, brand name, what it's really giving people is a sense of significance. And that's all it is. It's this feeling that, hey, I'm doing something. This is something for me to express. I'm doing something significant. And I think that's really what it boils down to because that's what the media is telling us. They're telling us in order to be important, in order to have value in this world, you need to be able to show that you've got this flashy car. And I was no different. I, I, I bought the German car when I was in my 20s. I was, you know, tooting around there. I've got my Japanese, uh, Korean car now and my fabric seats. But, but back then, it's like I wanted the leather because I'm like, well, then when the girl gets in the car, she's going to see the leather. And I think it just boils down to what we're trained by the society to think. It's unfortunate. And I really think it's unfortunate because, of course, you run the numbers and that's like one of the most worst things you can do with your money. With that said, I will say that there are some people that actually truly value the car. And I know you ultimately ended up with your NSX, and so that's, that's cool. But guess what? You actually value that, and obviously you had done some work prior to getting that. But I think you can do that as well. It's more about, I think, getting intentional with your money. And if you really do want to spend on that, then maybe you got to cut out over here. But you got to be at least knowing what's happening to that money. If you're okay with that money evaporating into all this depreciation, then okay. And if you can still create a plan around it, maybe you can get abundant in other areas and create more income and it can create an asset that funds that. So be it. But you should be aware of what's going to be happening in that, in that space. And I always try to jump in, not necessarily with, with cars because I don't care about cars, but it's about priorities and understanding, like, like you said, we value this and I want to, you know, buy expensive beer, like Carl and I will buy expensive beer, for example, or maybe it's a car for someone and they, you know, that's the thing that makes them happy and they truly feel amazing when they, you know, sit in the seat. So. Absolutely. And the same thing for me, like, I don't necessarily drink, but I love food. And so I'll drop a pretty penny on food and, you know, people actually look at the details on the blog, they'll be like, are you freaking kidding me? You spend that much money on food? Yes. But you also have to kind of look at it in the context of it, right? What did I spend on food before when I was starting out? Mm -hmm. But now, yeah, I have the ability to be a little bit more free and that's what's important to me. But now with the car, I don't care that much about the car. I'm not trying to impress anyone with the car. I want something reliable, like you said. I want the AC and ironically enough, my AC is broken <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so got to get that fixed. But I think it's really about knowing what you value, like you said, Doug, and being intentional with your money and, and focusing on what's, what's important to you. Yeah, that's awesome. So food, if we were to go to San Diego, where should we go to eat? You know, some of the best foods actually the hole in the walls, fish tacos though. Oh. I like to take people on a fish taco tour. So there's tons of great fish tacos, shrimp tacos, and... Once you go beyond there, if you like meat, they've got this one place called Tacos El Gordo, 
and they have this thing called Tacos El Pastor, and there's just a big spit of meat, and they basically get this meat, and they carve it off, and it falls. It's, it's delightful. Oh, my God. I, I love San Diego. I got to get my ass back. You got to come back. Yeah, I'm going to right, I'll place. take it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I think we had fish tacos one time up by uh, a little we bit. We did. North. I think we did. Yeah, yeah. we did before oh. before the conference. So good. Oh, geez, I had a crappy donut for breakfast, but <laughs> I would really appreciate a good fish taco right about now. I'm so hungry. I know. <laughs> okay, uh, page one sixty eight. This is a controversial topic. Are early retirees who are early retirees who work truly retired? The Internet Retirement Police. What do you think about that? That's always a funny question. I believe they are. Whatever you believe is the right answer. And here's the thing. Retirement, I think, is more of a mindset. It's the ability to do what you want when you want. And when you so-called retire early, like I did, you have lots of choices in what you can do. You can dabble in different projects. For me, I wanted to be president with a family, so I actually stayed home with the kids for six years and was just fully present as a dad. And then I had the blog on the side as my little side side gig. Did the blog make money? Absolutely not. But if it did make money, I know a lot of times people get all up in arms and they say, well, then you're earning an income. So you're not really retired. So why are you telling me about fire? So now what I tell people is, you know what? I retired early from a traditional nine to five. Hopefully that makes you happy. But to be honest, it's really up to the person and their interpretation of retirement. If you want to talk about, you know, the AARP definition of retirement and whatnot, and you're just sitting on a golf course all day long, maybe not. But that's not the, I think the point with early retirees, it's about choice, it's about freedom. And the God honest truth is that if you retire early, I talk about this in the book, there's actually a section, a workbook. Should you even retire early? Because if you're actually content and you actually have a job that you like, then why retire early? If you have a job that you don't like, or if you have people in your sphere that are morally corrupt like I did, oh, then you're pulling the plug, right? And you're gonna go do something else that fits your God-given talents. But at the end of the day, it comes down to choice and freedom. And if you don't have something to retire to, you're gonna likely get depressed. You're likely going to have an identity crisis. And so, you're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to figure it out outside of this this definition. So for those that are looking to retire early, you gotta define what early retirement looks like to you. And if you wanna do that, figure out before you actually pull the plug. Yeah. What makes me happiest in life is little challenges like I just designed a solar panel hooray for my house and I'm gonna place an order and install it myself in a couple of weeks and it's so fun trying to figure out those little puzzles. So a lot of the things we do in life are work, but if that's what makes you happy, these solar panels will be work and they'll, I wouldn't consider that income and I don't think the internet retirement police would call me out for that. But if we ever have an ad on this podcast, <clears throat> Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> so, some people will probably call us out, but I wouldn't be doing this and all the work I do, the core component of it or the core goal of it is happiness. I wouldn't do it if I it wasn't helping me grow or become a better person, which makes me happy in the long term. So that's the ultimate goal. And if some of that stuff happens to make money, it does. I also find that it's just fun to make money too. Even like, I don't know, I have no idea what I'm going to do with any of it. We'll probably give most of it away because 
we're just pretty happy with what life is, but it's still kind of a fun little game. Like, hey, let's evaluate the syndication deal and uh, see how we can invest most efficiently. If I think I can squeak out of the syndicator is really good, maybe I sh- and it has a decent chance of beating the S&P 500, or I feel it does. I'm going to put my money there. And those puzzles are kind of fun to figure out, and it's gratifying when you start seeing the checks come in. So, I, yeah, there, there's nothing wrong with work. Yeah, no, I love that you say that, Carl, because it is a little bit of a game once you kind of reach a certain level and you're not worrying about the survival needs anymore. And everything else then, in some senses, becomes gravy and it becomes a game. And I believe that the more money that you have, the money doesn't define who you are, right? It's just going to magnify more of who you are. So if you're someone that's giving, if you have more money, you're going to give more. You're going to create more impact. And so I think having more money, creating more, and being able to work to... To, the, to your God-given talents, I think that's what the world craves. That's what the world needs. And if you're stuck at a nine-to-five job that you hate, that's not where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, those are all the comments I had on the book, and I'll let you talk in a second. But I want to close by saying I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's always an uh, interesting thing when someone asks you to read a book because it's a big ask, 200 pages, and I'm, I'm a pretty guy. I'm a pretty busy guy. So I'm like, okay, I'll read it. But I really enjoy this one. I got into it, and I couldn't put it down i i thought it was wonderful what i like most is the breadth of it you cover psychology you cover charity you cover all these other topics that aren't directly related to money but they are because if financial independence and money all, all that stuff is great but there's so much more to life that informs these decisions and you cover all that and i i really appreciate that so this is a great read and i think what we'll do if you made it this far, is I'm going to give away three copies of this. So if you leave a comment in the YouTube, on our YouTube channel, uh, we will give away three copies. Just uh, uh, leave, leave a nice comment or talk about Doug's love of cheesecake or, or Doug's, <laughs> Doug's haircut. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll give away three copies of the book. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the book? Or? Um, no, I think just, I just want to say that the book is really for anyone, someone that doesn't know anything about fire whatsoever. It starts at the beginning. It starts with understanding what mindset you need to have. And more importantly, that there's a choice. A lot of people don't even realize there's a choice out there. And so I really want to be able to reach those people that never had the opportunities that I was given. They didn't have the rich uncles. And just be able to know that there's an opportunity. And if you so choose, the outline's right there. And it's every step that you need. Of course, you're going to have to go deeper into some specific segments, but it'll take you through the entire journey. And it's a yeah, it's been a passion project that um, that I that I love doing. Awesome. I have a couple more questions, uh, kind of in a different direction. So, as an entrepreneur, and it sounds like you knew you wanted to start a business and be an entrepreneur for a long time. Is it hard for you to shut that off? For you? Do you have to rein yourself in to not start new projects and see all these opportunities out there? Yeah, I'll leave it at that. So, Yeah, great question, Doug. I think it depends on what my focus is at a given time. And I think it also depends on when I make a decision. So when I finally sold the business and I left the company that I was working for that was morally corrupt, I had a very clear decision that I wanted to be present with the kids. And so I said, you know what, no matter what I do, I'm going to be present first. And then secondarily, the passion project is going to be the second piece. 
And, and I stuck to that, I think. I stuck to that for the most part. Now that they're getting older, they're going to school. I have some time back to myself, which is only very recent. Now I'm starting to think, okay, yes, the entrepreneurial you know, spirit's coming back. And it's like, okay, I've got the time back. How can I also add value? How can I add value to people here in other areas? And yeah, there's like a million different things, especially at conferences, you talk to people. I know tons of entrepreneurs and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. And you're like, ooh, can I do that as well? I just recently started going down the crypto, crypto rabbit hole and NFTs. So, I mean, it's fun, but some of it is, you know, speculative at this point, but it's, I think for me, it's just built into my nature to want to grow something. And that's the other thing we talked about, you know, working after retirement. It's not about working. It's about growing. It's about adding value. Nice. What does a perfect day or week look like for you? Yeah, the perfect day or week for me usually would start out waking up early now, even though naturally I'm a late owl. I've realized that I can customize my schedule to, to modify. And the reason why I like the early mornings is because I can find my... I can find my time to myself and just get grounded. So now I do some meditation in the morning, some light exercise. I'll do some gratitude type of journaling. I'll learn something new, just something really quick. I'll read like a Blinkist or something, maybe something totally out of the realm of personal finance. And that really kind of sets up the day to then be present with the family, to do whatever I need to do with a smile on my face. And... I love fishing, so it would probably involve some fishing in there as well, um, as well as eating. I, I love eating. So finding a cool, nice little hole in the wall, getting something that's something that I've never tried before, and just really experiencing something new. Nice. Doug, how do people sign up for our, our email list? Oh, man, we've been f- completely forgetting. Yeah, it's milehifi.club. Okay, so if you sign up for our email list, we will give away some copies of the book to our email list, list as well. So leave a YouTube comment or sign up for our email list or both. Awesome. Very cool. And do you have any more questions at this point? I think I'm all done. I have nothing further to add. Where can people find you and where can they find the book? Sure. You can find the book on Amazon as well as Barnes & Noble. Um, I believe there are most stores now across the country and um, you can find me at my website, financiallyalert.com. That's the best place to find me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Michael. Thank you so much, Doug. Carl, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Michael. I smell more cookies in my future. And if when Michael, when Quan Coin comes out, when you have your initial coin offering, or when Michael's Cookie Hut comes out, I will invest in both. Although I would prefer the cookies. Don't worry. I'll tie the NFT to the cookie. <laughs> thank you, Michael.